Grace Hill, good morning. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you, if you have it, to turn to James chapter 4, verse 1. We'll have it on the screen. And we're going to hang out in James chapter 4. We're going to do most of chapter 4 this morning. But um, before we dive into that text this morning, I want to ask a question for all of us. And it's pretty simple, it's pretty basic, and maybe we would all have the same answer, but I'm, I'm just curious. When you think about the basis, like the most important thing for a relationship, and you had to choose one word, what word would that be for the, the basis of any relationship? The, the thing that you need, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a platonic, just a friendship, whether it's a business relationship, you want to get some work done in your house, what would you say is the most important thing for that relationship. And I kind of want to be a little interactive here, so it's okay. Does anybody want to say, like, what would you say? Wow, everyone. That's mine, too. Cool. All right. This is going to be a great sermon today. We're on the same page. Trust. But why is that? Why is that? Do we think about that implicitly or explicitly. I think it's both. Sometimes we think about that. I'm thinking about someone getting some work done in our house recently. And you know what? I didn't just call a bunch of people on the internet. I heard people who said, hey, we really like this person. We trust them. And so then my wife and I are like, okay, great. Well, if you, we trust you. And if you trust them, then all right, we'll extend some trust there. You know why? It felt safe. And in one sense, there's an aspect of vulnerability of inviting someone into our home that we don't know. And we can say, hey, you can come in and you can do work on our home and you're going to charge us an amount of money that we hope. We're going to trust you that you're not going to like rake us over the coals. We trust that you're going to take care of our house. We trust, you know, like, right, you get, you follow me, right? We probably all do the same thing. Certainly in our relationships with our future spouses or with our friends, do we trust? There's an aspect of safety and vulnerability, and stability. And so what is the thing, what's the one thing that destroys relationships? Is it not broken trust? How many of us in this room have suffered from our trust being broken by someone else? Maybe a contractor said they're gonna do something and they don't. Maybe a spouse, maybe a friend. Maybe a church community. Broken trust destroys relationships. And what flows from broken trust is the absence of safety, the absence of being able to be vulnerable. No longer am I safe. I'm no longer can I just let you in. I have walls up. You've hurt me. I'm afraid. And no longer is it stable. You think about children who have been abused, right? As they grow up, they start to understand. They view authority in ways. It feels very unstable. I don't know if I can trust this or not. And therefore, I don't know what I should do next. And so behavior is unstable, right? But a trusting relationship right? All of those things would be true. And so last week we looked at, James said, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exist when we trust the ways of the world versus looking to God. And he says, those things, it's no longer safe in our world anymore because we don't trust people. We don't trust God and we don't trust other people. It's up to us. And James says, hey, that's living according to the wisdom from below, versus living from the wisdom of God. And so last week, we basically answered this question, do we trust God? Do we trust him personally? Do we trust him in the way we live out our lives with 
one another. We saw what it meant to trust the Lord. It looked like there's a purity to understanding God and what he has to say. There's a peaceableness amongst God's people and how we relate to one another, even in the midst of disappointments and struggles and iPads falling down. There's a peace. Everybody's cool, right? There's a gentleness in how we relate to one another. This week is going to be the culmination of the past several chapters that we've been in together in the book of James. And James is basically going to show us in the text we have this morning that when we don't live according to the ways of God, when we live according to the wisdom of below, he's going to tell us that we've arrived at a certain place. This week in the letter of James, everything that we see when we look to the world rather than God, we see that all of this equates to spiritual adultery. We don't trust God. We've broken his trust. We are unfaithful. And so three things we're going to see this morning in our text, in our time together. One, we've ruptured the relationship with God. We've broken his trust. Second thing we're going to see is that God repairs what we have ruptured. And the third thing we're going to see is that We are called and can now live from that grace, that repair of our ruptured relationship with God. We can live now from that with God and with one another. Let's read our text this morning. I want to read James 1. We looked at that last week, James 1, verses 1 through 3. But I think it just helps set up our time a little bit this morning. And then we're going to see 4 through 12 together. Read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, right? If you just stop right there, verse up to verse three, we can trace all the way back in the letter that James has already written. He's saying all of these things equate to looking towards the wisdom from below. Verse four, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Heavenly Father, I just ask this morning that we would see those three things. I think it's clear in your text this morning, but Father, I pray that the weight of that as we wrestle through this letter, as we continue to work through it, God, as we recognize our faith is meant to be lived out into all the dirty areas and messy areas of our life and what sin has caused in us and those around us, that, Father, we would trust you, and, Lord, that we would see and grieve rightly, but, Father, we'd also rejoice rightly at the, the gift of your repair of the ruptures that we have caused. And, God, I pray that you would continue to encourage us this morning to be a people who don't just love you, but we love each other as well. And so, God, would you just simply do that work this morning by your spirit and through your very word. In Jesus' name, amen. And verse 4, you adulterous people. Welcome to Grace Hill. If you're new, glad you're with us this morning. The Greek word, I like it. It's more, it's, it's, it's better translated than this. The ESV translated into three words. It's really one word. It's adulteresses. It's, it's a plural word. It's all of us. It's the context of his letter. He's writing to all these people. He's saying unfaithful people. And notice if you've read the letter with us over the past several weeks and months, you've noticed that James refers to you and me and his audience as brothers and sisters, and then this is an abrupt change. Adulteresses. I love the Outer Banks. I'm getting ready to go there this week. And one year when we were down there, I've been going there my whole life, and one year when I was down there, I was in the, down in Hatteras, and we were going to do some stuff out on the water on the sound. It's called the Pamlico Sound. And I was so excited. We were out there, and a hurricane had come through. I don't remember which hurricane it was, but the guy that owned this place, we were going to take some jet skis out with my family, and we were just going to, like, just bump around on those out there. And so we had seen a lot of, like, kind of damage and stuff like that, and we are like, hey, how was the hurricane you went through? And he's like, let me show you some pictures. It was fascinating. And there's this thing called, and some of you will know what it is, called a tidal blowout. Has anybody heard of that? Okay, well, one person wants to answer. Anyway, so a title blog, and he showed me these pictures of the sound that we had full of water, and they were getting out to be on jet skis with very shortly. He pulls up his phone, and he shows, and this sound, which you can't see across the other side, by the way, he shows, and it's just mud and sand. That's it, as far as you can see. All the water had been sucked out. And so, like, the counterclockwise winds of the hurricane just sucked the water out, and he said, look at this. This is crazy. I've never seen it like this. And he's like, I live here. And I was like, that's amazing and terrifying. And then he showed me a picture of after where all the water rushes back in, and that's where so much of the damage comes from, is it rushes back into the docks and the boats and all the land and stuff like that, and it caused devastation. And I kind of feel like that analogy, that illustration really sets up verse four, adulteresses. All of a sudden, it's like been like, man, we've been sitting in the sound, the Pamlico sound, all the water's been pushed out, and he's kind of setting things up, and then all of a sudden, verse four comes, and the water rushes back in, and he says, here's the consequence of what it means to live for the world and not to live for God. You're adulteresses. In the scriptures, our relationship with God so often is talked about in multiple ways. It's talked about as a king. He rules over us. It's talked to us as 
a father who cares for us, as a shepherd who protects us, and as a husband who loves us. And I want to focus on the father and the husband illustration that we see depicted of God's relationship with us. And I want to do that. And I want us to look back a little bit in the Old Testament where we're going to really see these illustrations come to life for us in light of James' text to us this morning of how we have ruptured, how we have broken God's trust. Look with me, if you will, and it's on the screen. Jeremiah 2.2 says this. The prophet Jeremiah says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Let's look at the prophet Isaiah 54.5. And the prophet Isaiah says this about God's relation to, to us, specifically as it relates to a husband and a bride. Isaiah says this, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. The Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And then in Hosea, the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, if you've read this book, you probably know where we're going here. But basically, God is going to say to the prophet Hosea, hey, you want to know what it's like to be me, God, in relationship to you? Go marry a prostitute. take a breath. It's stunning language. It is for me, at least. I still feel the sting of this reality of God saying, you want to know what it's like to be me in relationship with you, us, me, all of us, marry someone who's going to be unfaithful to you. James showing us that we are just like Israel a faithless bride to God who breaks her trust. The thing that destroys relationships, we have done. Hosea 4.1 says this. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And that word knowledge in Hosea 4.1 is actually tied to, yes, it's this understanding of right things about God, but it's a really relational word. It's this understanding that obedience comes from that. Obedience is a relational reality. And he's saying there is no knowledge of God in the land. You've been unfaithful to me. You do not know me. Not that you just don't know about me, but you don't know me. And in the scriptures, we hear that word know used often as a relational part between a husband and a wife. There's an intimacy to this word. And God says, there's no knowledge of that in the land. And Grace Hill, this is what James has been hammering over and over again for us in this letter. We're just like Israel, we're faithless, not because we don't know the right things, but because we don't love God, because we don't obey God. James has showed us, right? We don't love the poor. We don't control our tongues, and we don't love God. We chase the wisdom from below in friendship with the world. Our sin has ruptured our relationship with God. We broke God's trust. So we've seen how... We've broken trust with God. 
And I'm also so fascinated by God's response to us and how we have broken his trust. Look at verse six. We'll come back to verse five. Look at God's response, church, to you and to me. Listen to this. Just listen. Close, actually, close your eyes and listen to this. This is how unfaithful we've been. We've just gone over that. Close your eyes and just listen. Feel the weight of what we have done, what has happened, the trust we've broken, and just imagine hearing this in response to the very one we've broken our trust against. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. You've broken my trust. I give you my grace. You've been unfaithful to me. I give you my grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives Grace to the humble. He gives more grace. Grace Hill, why? Why does God give more grace to us? Why? Why does he do it? He gives us more grace because he loves us so, so much. The storybook Bible that I get to read with my kids, especially when they were younger, was this reality that used that word so, so a lot. So, so much. God loves you so, so much. That's why he gives you grace in spite of our unfaithfulness. He loves us so much. I said this before, like a father with a child, we see some of these depictions in scriptures that God's love for us is like a father who loves his children. In Hosea, we won't have to go there, but he uses the term Ephraim, and Ephraim is is the name for Israel, and, and it's like God's depicted as a parent that he starts with Ephraim. He says, oh, Ephraim, he's like, I'm so mad at you for disobeying. I'm so mad at you for being for breaking my trust. And then you see in the book of Hosea how he moves to, he gets really sad. And you read the book of the, through Hosea, you read chapter after chapter and there's these poetic realities of like how sad that the mourning he has for us being unfaithful. And then you move as the parent where he says, I'm not gonna give up on you. And what parent in this room would give up on their child? Not one of us. That is similar to the love of God who says, I love you like a child, and though you have walked away from me, I will not give up on you. And I've already said it's like God's love is depicted like a loving husband. Read these words in Hosea 3. We're going to read the whole chapter together. He loves us like a father. He loves us like a husband would love his bride. Hosea 3 says, Hosea The Lord says to Hosea, he says, and the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Isn't that stunning? Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel will dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of God of Israel, after the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in 
fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Hosea goes and pays off his wife's debts, even as she has left him for another lover. He goes. Do you get that? Hosea goes and gets his unfaithful wife, who is now with another man, and buys her back. How deep is God's love for you and for me? Hosea goes and repairs what had been ruptured, just like God does that too. And you know what Hosea also does? He doesn't just buy her back. He recommits his love to her again. Essentially renews their vows again as well. This is a stunning reality of God's love for us. Look at verse five with me now. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says, he, meaning God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Jealousy is a result of God's love for us. How does that work? This isn't a jealousy like you and I get jealous. This isn't an earthly jealousy where it's like, oh, you have something and I want it and now I'm mad because I can't have it. No, this is so different. I love how J.I. Packer articulates how God's jealousy is tied to the depth of his love for us. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. God's jealousy It's not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy, ours, between one another, but appears instead literally as praiseworthy zeal to preserve something, get this, supremely precious. God's jealousy is not like ours. It's how much he loves and wants to preserve what he loves with us. He says also, God's jealousy over his people, as we see over and over again, presupposes his covenant love. God has made a covenant. If you know the scriptures at the very beginning, he says, I am God and you are my people. And he makes a covenant with us. And so he says, it presupposes this love. And this love is not just transitory affection, meaning that it just comes and goes on whims. Instead, he says, this love is, has an a aim. It's the expression of a sovereign purpose. The goal of God's covenant love is that he should have a people on earth as long as history lasts that show God's heart for the world. That's what God's jealous love is after with you and me. That's how much he loves us. I just want to say this is where we live the Christian life from. Is that not the gospel? Some have argued James doesn't ever talk about the gospel. It doesn't talk about Christ. Where's the Christology in James? It's right here. It's been there all along. And James has been saying, look, this is what our deeds have done, but look what God has done. Look what we have ruptured, and look how great it is that God has repaired what we have broken with him. Is that not unbelievable? That is the gospel. And all of the Christian life, friends, Grace Hill, our lives are meant to be lived from that love from that place is where you and I are meant to live from every single day. You've heard it said on this stage, and I'm sure in many other churches, 
We never graduate from needing to be reminded of the gospel every single day, right? Because this is where we, this is our story. Look what we've ruptured and look what God has repaired. And so the last thing I want us to see in our text this morning is that God's grace repairs our ruptured relationship with him and it gives us the grace. That very grace is how we are then to live with you and me together. We live from that grace as God's people every single day from that kind of love. And that is the very love that we show each other. Mel has been talking about what worship is and our calls to worship over and over again. This is what worship is, living from this place in all areas of our lives. Listen, the point I want to make here is repentance is repair in action, is what James is saying. Repentance is repair in action. Look at verse 6 again with me. First, we repent to God. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So how does repentance work? What does James say we're to do? How does this work in our relationships before God and one another? The first thing about repentance that James shows us in this text is that we are to ask for forgiveness. Repenting to God is seeking his forgiveness. It's turning away from our sin and our unfaithfulness and running back to God. Repentance before God looks like asking him for forgiveness. Repenting is a posture of humility. That's what James is saying. Humble yourselves. Draw near to God, right? So the second part of repentance before God is actually asking for forgiveness, but then actually seeking him. It's not just we just say, God, how sorry I am for what I've done. But now, as James said in the chapter three, when we seek his wisdom, we seek to live according to his ways. This is another part of repentance. It's not just looking at it and turning away, but moving towards God, The text says, draw near. I trust you. I need your guidance. God, you know better than I do. We ask for forgiveness. We seek God. James then says another part of repentance is resisting the devil. What does that mean? Resisting the devil is simply turning away from things that we've already read in the letter. Impartiality to see other people as lower or less than you, judging people by the color of their skin. He's saying, that, that, that is, that is, that, that's of the devil. It should have no part in my kingdom. Resisting the devil looks like loving each other more than we love ourselves. That's what it looks like to literally resist the devil. The devil says, you need, you are going to, what about you? What about you? What about you? God says, no, look to me and love other people. That's what it looks like to resist the devil. James also says, resisting the devil means we pay attention to what we say. We hammered that in chapter two. Resisting the devil is turning away from selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. The fourth thing, we ask for forgiveness, we seek God, we resist the devil. And the fourth thing that we see in this text is that we actually, we hate, like we hate 
sin. Listen to me. We hate sin. Do we hate sinners? We hate sin. Verse 9 says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he saying? Like, do we grieve our sin? When, I was talking to Stacy about this in the car this week. When was the last time you wept over your sin? And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just mean, in light of James, understanding what repentance and looking to God is, he's saying, man, weep and mourn. When's the last time your sin deeply grieved you as if you lost a loved one? I think James writing to a group of people, just like you and me, where, like, whoa, whoa, you're getting a little too serious, dude. Come on, come on. Slow down a little bit. Take your foot off the gas, pal. Enjoy the ride a little bit, Okay. James isn't saying, no, no, no. It's not that you need less seriousness. You don't take it serious enough. We looked at what we've ruptured. Adulteresses is what we've all been before God. Do you grieve that? Do I, have I grieved that? Do I hate what has ruptured my relationship with God? And do I hate what has ruptured my relationship with you guys in different places too? Does it grieve you? Does it grieve me? God loves us. And so see, this is the reality of grief of our sin is he doesn't want just mere rote obedience. We all get that, right? If you're a spouse, if you have a spouse, if you have a friend, if you have a family, if you have a coworker or something like that, we all know no one wants just mere rote obedience. What do we want? We want love and affection. Think about that in the context of your relationship. If your spouse just goes, fine, I'll just do it. Are you like, great, this is gonna be the best date night ever. Or it's like, I'm gonna go and have that meal with you because I know you love that. And therefore, I'm going to put your interests above my own. And I'm not going to say that out loud. Guess what I'm doing right now, honey? I'm putting your interests above your, my own. And she can be, well, that's super romantic, Evan. Thank you. Does she want the just rote obedience to do that, just doing the right thing? No, she wants my love. And so when we don't do that, we should be grieved over that. And the way God is grieved over that, he wants our affection just like a husband wants it with his wife and vice versa, just like a parent with a child or a friend Does it grieve us when we sin against one another? Does it grieve us? Putting my cards on the table for you all this week as I just studied that, I had to answer this question, and sadly, it had been a long time since I had actually felt grief over my own sin and the ways that I've sinned against other people and much less sinned before God. So James shows us what it should be like to repent before God. You know what it is? It's the same exact process as how we should repent in our relationships towards one another. James points out something crucial so that what flows from our repaired rupture before God is the very thing that flows into our ruptures with each other and the way we're supposed to behave with each other. And, and, and I was thinking about that, like the water that I was talking about at the very beginning that like rushed back into 
the sound, and it caused all that damage? Well, that was kind of a negative illustration. I just now want to use that illustration to close with and to look at it this way. In this sense, the picture he showed was a bunch of boats that were stuck in the mud and in the sand. Guess what? None of those things can do what they're intended to do, right? Without that water that comes in and, and, and allows it to be a boat sitting on a dock, they're going to go out and fish and do all the fun things, right? And that's the same thing I think we're seeing here in the reality of what, what happens in our relationships with each other when we repair them. It's like when the water comes back in, everything can go back to the way it was intended to be. And James is saying that's what God wants in our relationship with him, and that's what he wants with our relationships with one another, Look at the last two verses as I close. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, we see in verse 6, that God wants to create in us a type of community that no longer quarrels and fights amongst each other. Does that mean we're going to be free from fights and quarrels? No, we're still sinful people. But what James has in view, and can you imagine this with me as we read this text of thinking these last two verses, what James has in view for us and, the, and for, for, for certainly for his audience and for you and for me today is this view of a community of God's people where Fights and quarrels are slowly and consistently dissipating. What would that look like? Can you imagine what comes up in your head? A community of people who are no longer marked by quarreling and fighting. James has in view that there's a community of God's people who are no longer ruled by jealousy and selfish ambition. What would that look like amongst you and me together as a church here in Herndon? What would that community look like? James has in view in these last two verses a community that is marked by love and encouragement, not judgment and condemnation. Is he saying we don't have discernment and use that to help each other? Of course he's, he's not saying we don't help one another as we look at God's word is pure. And when we're outside of it, what do we wanna do? We wanna call people back to that. But we don't condemn each other. We don't bite and devour. We seek love and compassion and gentleness to bring them back. Because how did God treat us? He came for us when we were unfaithful to him. He didn't condemn us. Okay, so James shows us a community of what God's grace starts becoming, where we are quicker to listen than to speak. That's what it looks like here. We're quicker to listen than we are to speak. We're curious with each other. We're a community that begins loving the poor more and more. Those who are busted up, and it looks less like cliquish groups of insulated friendships 
right? That's not what the kingdom of God is like. That's what it looks like to take James seriously, to look to God's wisdom. It looks more encouraging than condemning, which is James' point here in verses 11 through 12. It's more seeking God's wisdom, consistently helping one another flee when we see us running after the wisdom of the world. It's a community that seeks to encourage each other daily as long as it's called today. And my question for you is, can you imagine that kind of a community? And you're not in that community. As I close, the way I answer that question as one of your pastors is I can because I've gotten to experience that here in this local church. Are we perfect? No, not even close. Are there fights and quarrels that happen here? Absolutely. But I have watched with my own eyes, I've heard with my own ears, this community that James lays out here that he's writing to that says, this is what it looks like to trust God. This is what it looks like to live in light of the repair that God has done to the ruptures that we've caused. It starts to look a lot like people literally loving each other and thinking of each other. And I've watched that over and over and over again. I've watched and observed you all care for people who are busted up right now. have given generously of your own financial resources to help the down and out, the poor, the sick. You all are doing that. What I love about how hard this text actually is in some regards is the beauty that it is something to be lived out and experienced in the midst of all the sin that wrecks us. It's that God's grace is more, it's greater. So while we are to grieve our sin, we should. We should weep and mourn over our sin. We worship and thank the God who comes for us and shows us more grace. And from that grace is where we live from. And you all are living examples of that reality. What's that been tasting like for you as you've seen that? Maybe you're one of the ones that has experienced that love and grace. What's that like? This morning, we all get a chance to come and experience and literally taste in one way the grace of God to us. Come to the table this morning and to be reminded of everything that James just said, that God repairs what we have ruptured, that God repairs the things when we have turned away from him and we don't want him, when we've worn after other lovers. God comes and pays the debt to get us back. This table represents what Jesus has done for you and me in that very sense. It also reminds us that there's work that he's called us to do, not to earn his grace, but to live from 
that there's hurting people all around us, that there's you and me that we need to live life with to encourage each other. And this table reminds us that God's grace isn't finished yet. He's still redeeming us and he's still at work amongst us. And we heard that from Chad and even the report today. That is what the gospel does in us. And so, Grace, so I pray that you come this morning. You're struggling to believe that in your unfaithfulness that God actually really loves you. I pray this morning as you come to the table, you would just reflect that God has run after you the way it's been depicted already in the text this morning. As unfaithful as you are, God pursues you and comes for you. And not only just wants to just put you right back in the seat, but he wants to get you out on the field and doing the things in his name and enjoying his grace and demonstrating that to those around you who need the very same grace that you do. I hope this morning you come to the table and you would taste the cracker and you would remember the broken body of Jesus and you would taste the juice and you remember his blood that has been shed to repair those ruptures and that you would with joy sing this last song to go out and to share that love with those around you. I just want you to come to the table. If Jesus is your Lord, come to the table. If he's not, I would just ask you to consider what does, it look, what does the world have to offer you in light of what you have done and the trust that you've broken? Will the world come for you and offer you grace or will it offer you condemnation? I just ask you, just sit in this seat this morning, pray, ask God, what would the world give you for breaking its trust? And I'll offer to you this morning what Jesus Christ offers to you when you've broken his trust, he welcomes you with grace and love and mercy and calls you then to live for him. And I want you to taste that this morning. If you have questions, I would love to talk to you. Talk to Mel, talk to the band, talk to Alan, talk to anyone in here. We would love to walk with you in understanding what it means to live life in the repaired relationship between God and you now. Grace Hill, would you come and come as you're ready and let me pray. Father, I just ask simply that you would just encourage us this morning by your grace. That's it. That's it. The whole sermon was about your grace. Yes, it shows us how deeply, deeply we are in need of your grace, but God, how much more you give grace to us when we deserved condemnation. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that our spirits, our countenance would be lifted to you, that we would sing and be thankful for the grace that you've given us. And God, that we would not just leave it there, but we would go out and we would live with love for others as we have been loved by you. And God, I pray this morning for Grace Hill Church that she would be encouraged at living in light of those realities, God, from your grace. That, God, that you are pleased with as you look at grace so that it's not perfect, but, God, you are seeing your people seek to be faithful to you and to love each other. And I pray that there would be deep joy growing in this room this morning. God, we just give thanks for what your grace does. In Jesus' name I pray.